Hey y'all, it's officially been a year of We the Black People, and Milestone Juzuki people very self-reflective, and I want to do like a fun clips show montage episode, and that's that's coming. But before we do that, another thing that a year later is heavy on my mind is the fact that one of my big aims with starting the show was addressing both where high school history education lacks and the attacks that were coming in 2020 against history education, particularly black history education. I mean, on my first release date, I released an episode called Defending History Education with my high school history teacher. And somehow in a year, November of 2021, things have gotten significantly worse and history education seems to be in even more danger across the country. So today I want to return to the history classroom with another educator to talk about the issues in black history education right now and how teachers are combating them. Today I have on with me Professor LeGarrett King of the University of Missouri. He's a social studies education professor. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Brooklyn. I really appreciate this. It's just good to be talking about this stuff again. Now, since you're both an educator of social studies educators and one of your big research interests is the history of black history education, I just want to start the show by opening it up for your thoughts on what is happening in the country around history education right now. You know, if I could go back a little bit, right, there has always been this way in which whenever there's been perceived advancements for black people, Those advancements have always been met with vigorous resentment from a good percentage of the population, although I would argue the minority of the population. But, you know, the attacks have been very reckless and, you know, sometimes throughout history, violent for this perceived notions of advancements. Right. So I want to go back to kind of the election of Barack Obama. Right. In 2008. And I think a lot of people, particularly black people that know history, was like, ah, so what's going to happen? And I think most people were thinking, well, what's going to happen to that brother, right? You know, like, oh, man, stay in those cars, you know, be very safe or whatever the case would be. But there was going to be some reaction against the United States having a black president. And we just didn't know what that reaction would be, right? Because we were just waiting. And then, of course, we can say, okay, well, the election of Donald Trump was that particular reaction. But when we think of, you know, Black Lives Matter in 2015, we think about the quote-unquote racial reckoning of 2020, the summer of 2020 with George Floyd, when actually the majority of the population wanted to know more about this aspect of systemic racism. No matter that Black historians and Black people have been talking about this since the beginning of our existence here in the U.S. about this notion of systemic, but there seem to be corporate interests, folk just really wanting to know, people who do race work were getting invited out to do all these particular things and to educate society, et cetera, et cetera. And this whole notion of going against Black history or you know history about race, it wasn't really a surprise. And even when you even think about the history of history education, we've seen this before, right? So in the late 80s and 90s, it was cultural wars against multicultural education. And multicultural education was supposed to be the boogeyman, just like CRT is the boogeyman now. We can go back to the McCarthy era, 
the red scare. And what I will call this area is the black scare. But the red scare where 600 school teachers lost their jobs based on communism. And we can go back to the textbooks of Harold Rugg in the 30s and the 40s. He was just talking about trying to humanize immigrants. And, you know, he was unpatriotic in the banning of his textbooks all over the country. So we kind of see that a good cultural war is good for politicians because they're not coming with good faith arguments. It's just the strategy to create moral outrage and more panic because they have no policies to go by to win an election. So it's really crazy. It's not surprising. And that's a sad thing about it, right? For those of us who know history, it's not really surprising. We just don't know what was going to be the reaction and how they were going to do it. Honestly, I feel like that's one of the craziest parts about today is how unsurprising it really is. You look and you're like, wow, this happened at least a good five, six times in the last 200 years. And I think what's really surprising, I guess, you know, for me, but it really shouldn't be surprising. We are allowing all this stuff to happen because I think the biggest thing for those who want to hold on to their power, hold on to the identity of the United States is that they don't really care what Black people think about the history. What they care about is the majority of white people and what they care about. So just kind of think about it. The ways in which you hold power, which I've always believed that the United States have always been ran by the minority of people. And the great majority, is, for some strange reason, they're scared of the minority of people. For what reason? I have no idea. But when we kind of think about it, if these people, if we learn our true history, The idea is that, hey, the power structure will come down because everyone always says, you know, we learn our history so we don't repeat ourselves. But we continue to repeat ourselves because we never learn history. So those examples I told you, it's like we're repeating history again and again and again. But if people actually know the history and understand, oh, okay, well, wow, there's systemic racism, then school children, right? They're our future citizens. And if they come up believing that, oh, wow, we do have some problems within the United States. And as a citizen, as the next leader, I can actually change those problems when I grow up, right? And become this voting citizen, et cetera, et cetera. And that's scary for a lot of different people. Because if you learn your history, you change society. So it has never been about black or brown people and their understandings and feelings of history. It's always been, well, what will white people do if they actually know their history? And that's why the summer of 2020 was very scary for a lot of people who want to maintain power. I've always talked about how like empowering history is because like over and over again, you see people overcoming the odds, the people with the least amount of power turning it over, like utilizing the little bit of power they had to make change and to gain more power over and over again. I mean, black people started out as slaves. It happens over and over again. And that is pretty dangerous. Yeah, the blueprint is there, right? So we're not even talking about, oh, man, people are oppressed, right? We're talking about the agency, of people who are oppressed. And that is a totally different approach to history because it's not about this victimhood. It's about kind of that liberary aspects of freedom. So the blueprint is already there. The problem is we don't study these people. We don't study their approaches. And if we study and we understand their approaches, then people who are serious about making the United States more equitable, more democratic, would see and hopefully push the country into a better place. Yeah, there is this way that when you erase the history of oppressed people, it does kind of seem like it has always been this way. The same people have always been in power. And that's just like an unchanging structure. And that's damaging to everyone. Yeah, yeah. 
And throughout that history as well, those who have fought against kind of the tradition, fought against the establishment, have always been dealt with in a way that people can always remember. You know, look, there's some still some people who were part of the Black Panther Party that's still in prison for things they didn't do, right? You know, some for, you know, what they did and was set up. But for, for a lot of them, yeah, they're political prisoners, right? You look at in the early 20th centuries by lynching. This person did something against the establishment. They were lynched, right? Today, particularly with the anti-CRT laws and all that such, you know, you see teachers being punished to an extent that says, hey, you will comply. So history is very complex. But I think one thing that we could really learn history is about the collectiveness. When folk, you know, no matter what racial lines come together, then things would change because as a collective, people have a little bit more power than just individuals. Definitely. Since you're in education on the ground, talking to teachers all the time, what do you do in a world where it's coming under attack so much? There's a lot of things that we definitely could do. Well, first, let me say this. I think the majority of people really want to make sure that we have a truthful account of our historical legacy. And I truly believe that of a lot of teachers that are around the country, right, they just want to be able to teach in peace and be able to teach and engage with their students. All these news stories never really talk with teachers, particularly black teachers. They never talk to children, particularly black children. Right. They never talk to parents, particularly black parents. Right. That believe that, hey, we need a truthful history. For most teachers, I believe that they just want to know how do we do effective teaching of history. That has encouraged me to create a Black history framework for teachers that help them kind of teach a more holistic and humanistic approach to Black history. And that seems to be working a little bit for a lot of different districts and students who come through the framework. That makes sense. Resources are really the big thing that they're in need of. Yeah. And a collective, right? So like I have a conference every year over the summer called the Teaching Black History Conference. And that brings teachers from around the country to kind of share resources and talk about Black history teaching and get to know each other. So throughout the year, these people can connect with each other, talk with each other about various different lesson plans and content that they're doing in their schools. And it seems to be working pretty well for a lot of people. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that. Thanks. Thanks. Now, I definitely want to get into that curriculum we talked about, particularly the beginning. Early America, that's usually where the most erasure of Black people is when we talk about history. So I definitely want to get into the way that you talk about the foundation of America and include Black history there. I've been doing a project on this notion of Black founders of quote-unquote America, right, or uh, Black founders of the United States of America. And interesting enough, I think I started thinking about Black founders maybe in 2010, and it was from an unlikely source. So I was flipping through the channels, and I think I stopped at Fox News. And Glenn Beck had this show about Black founders. So I was like, man, what's going on here? So I was watching the show and I was like, okay, the concept of Black founders is interesting. I just didn't like the way in which they were presenting notions of Black founders on the show. Because one thing in our country that we do poorly is that we believe in what I will call historical uniformity. And by historical uniformity, we believe that all histories are the same, no matter who the person is. So, for example, 
he was situating black founders like they were just white people, but with darker skin, that they believed in the same things that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington believed in. And then you have to sit back. And this kind of goes to how some people don't believe in the humanity of black people. Like we have no ideas, no perspectives, no feelings. And a simple question to be like, well, why in the heck would people who are being enslaved by you want to fight for your liberty? Do you actually believe that these people loved you or loved America and they were oppressed? It's kind of like that added black people love their time as slaves. And it's like, it's just crazy. So it's like, oh, this person loved this person. This person loved it. So that's why they fought for freedom for the American people. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right just from a human side. For example, if we were treated badly by our parents, most people who were treated badly by their parents move out, move away, don't talk to their parents. And that's our parents. So you really believe that these people would just say, hey, I love America so much. I'm going to fight for America without any benefits for them. So that was going through my mind when I was watching that show. So, yeah, you know, I say, all right, uh, Glenn Beck did this Black Founders thing. It was very political. So I began to start kind of researching this notion of Black Founders and found out that the great historian Leron Bennett wrote about Black Founders in Ebony Magazine. So I said, ah, this is what I was thinking. Yes, there were black founders, those who were not only helped create the United States of America, but they actually created a country within a country, particularly for black folks. So black founders in many ways are these people who not only help establish the United States, but they help establish kind of a black nation within a racist nation. So that's how I came to start thinking about this notion of black founders. The idea of going like, yeah, black people, they were the same as white people even though they were completely not the same, is wild. Yes, yes. Black people fought in the American Revolution. They fought both for the British side and the colonist side. The thing about it is their loyalty was freedom. So, I mean, when Lord Domar said, hey, you all can be free if you fight on the British side, many enslaved people were like, okay, let's fight. Let's deflect from these plantations and let's go over there and let's fight for this cause because this person said we were going to be free. When colonists figured it out and they needed manpower because, you know, they they were like black people not fighting for the continental army. But they saw that, you know, a lot of black people were defecting. It's the United States. So capitalism was involved and a lot of plantation owners were complaining that black people were leaving their plantations to go over to the British side to fight. So George Washington and the continental army was said, hey, guess what? Mm, we'll give you freedom. Right. If you fight in the American Revolution. So. This aspect of they were fighting for the love and the freedom of the American colonists is really silly when we kind of think about the humanistic aspects of just people. They were fighting for the freedom of themselves and they were fighting for the freedom of their race, not out of love of the American colonists or the love of Great Britain, which both countries didn't see them as fully human. That makes sense. I want to zoom in even more to talk more about like specifically who these black founders are, the people who founded both America and black America, because that's just such an interesting way to think about it. 
So there's three categories. Black founders who were enslaved. These are the people that built the infrastructure of the United States. These are people that founded various different cities. These are people that essentially made the United States into an economic power. And I think sometimes we don't give enslaved people enough credit as founders, despite the fact that they were forced, but, you know, founders of the United States. Second group of people would be those who created social institutions. Now, Social institutions are extremely important. These are people that develop black churches. So look at the AME church, right, that a lot of black people attend today. It was created during that particular moment with Richard Allen and Jones and everyone like that, right? Those would be considered, you know, founders as well, because you needed places where black people could be black, where black people could not be subjugated to oppression. So these social institutions, such as the black church, newspapers, literary societies, all these particular social institutions were created for black people. And there was a sense that free black people started these institutions, but these institutions were created to ensure that when we were free, that black people had places to go where they would be free of racism. Then, of course, you had what I would call race leaders. Race leaders, these were the people that challenged the white founders' ideas about race. So for many ways, we think about Black founders is something that's physical, right? You know, we think of enslaved people as, oh, they built the country through physical means. But then we don't talk about the intellectual agency that a lot of black race leaders had. So these race leaders challenged and called out white founders' ideas about race and racism. The person I like to talk about a lot is Benjamin Banneker and his letter to Thomas Jefferson. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the state of Virginia, notes, Banneker challenged Thomas Jefferson's understandings of who black people were. Because a lot of times, like Thomas Jefferson were writing the notes that black people were second class humans, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, you know, slavery was a vile evil. So he had these kind of schizophrenic ideas floating around the notes. And, you know, Benjamin Banneker essentially wrote that says, hey, look, I'm a black man, proud black man. I'm intelligent. And they went back and forth. That's just one example of how these race leaders and you have, have to think about it during that time. You had to be very brave to do something like that, even as a free man. So these race leaders essentially challenged whiteness and challenged how blackness was perceived by those around the country. Those are the basic three categories of Black founders in the United States, but mainly the Black founders were creating a nation within a nation to ensure that after emancipation, Black people had institutions to go to. So how does this, adding more Black people to American history, translate to a different way of teaching American history? I think the biggest thing about teaching Black history is that we have to understand that Black history is not necessarily the American history that we teach. What's really important for people to consider, again, just like I said earlier, we believe in historical uniformity, but we don't necessarily believe in historical contention. And by historical contention, we need to understand history as not history, but we need to understand history as histories. So that means there's different perspectives that people don't necessarily consider when they think of history. So Black history is essentially history from Black people's perspectives, their epistemologies, and their experiences. So what I tell a lot of people is, what we normally do is we teach about Black history, but we don't teach through Black history. 
Right. So when we teach about black history, that is teaching black history through someone else's perspectives, particularly white people's perspectives, what they wish we were, what they believe we know and who we are and et cetera, et cetera. But when we teach through black history, we teach through black people's perspectives. So that history will look totally different. For example, if we teach Brown versus Board of Education, Many people who went to school and understand a basic knowledge of Brown versus Board of Education would think that Brown versus Board of Education was a good thing for a lot of people, right? It integrated society. It passed nine to zero in the Supreme Court. And Brown versus Board was supposed to correct the wrongs of the past. Some type of moral victory for the United States. But when you teach through Black people, through Brown, you'll know that a lot of Black people didn't want to integrate with white children or white people because they understood what would happen if integration took place. And plus, integration meant not integrating into Black schools, but integrating into white schools. Uh, And when you integrate into white schools, what happened? Black administrators lost their jobs or were demoted. Black teachers lost their jobs because, of course, you need space to do all those things. And probably the most kind of dangerous aspects of Brown versus Board was the racism that pursued right after that. When I was at Clemson University, we did a panel of people who were the first to integrate their schools. And I believe they were in elementary school at that time. There was a good question from a student and the student asked, well, how did you handle racism from your classmates? And overwhelmingly, the panel said, we didn't experience racism from our classmates. We experienced racism from our teachers. So even as elementary school children, they understood that their teachers did not want to teach them, right? So if we trace the history of education and we trace the history of what we would call the achievement gap, the achievement gap began in the 70s when most schools began to start integrating. Instead of helping teachers be able to be a little bit more culturally relevant and, and culturally responsive, they blamed the child particularly the black children, because we have to realize that Brown versus Board made it seem like black schools were inferior. The only inferior thing were the funds and the funding that was happening in black schools. And that's where most black people were saying, like, hey, give us the right to go to any school that we would like to. Right. Particularly if the school is closer. But for our schools that are nurturing in us. Right. We have wonderful teachers who are academically rigorous and culturally responsive, et cetera, et cetera. We just need to have more funding, right, to make sure that we're on par with those predominantly white schools that had, not that our schools were inferior. So you see how that history kind of changes when we teach through Black perspectives, and that's how all history should be. It should be taught by various different perspectives, and you will kind of see how different those histories are. That's definitely something we've seen talking about different histories. I remember there was an episode where we talked about the Green Book and the way that there were segregated accommodations for so long. But then when it was finally like integrated, instead of there being like an intermixing where like white people would go to black accommodations and black people would go to like the nicer white hotels, it was just a one way thing. And that drove so many black hotels out of business. That's the like thing that's always missing is what black people were thinking about different parts of history. And see, okay, this comes full circle. So you kind of understand why certain people are very upset when you try to improve the history curriculum or improve the historical narratives, right? Because for so long, white people have been taught that they were the most historically important people in the world. So when you begin to start infusing history that does not center white people, then it creates kind of this 
cognitive dissonance of what's really going on. Kind of similar to how people, you know, say that all your life you were told you were special and then you grow up and someone says you're not that special and you're like, oh my God, I'm not that special, right? It's the same thing. When you deal with a collection of histories, white people are not that historically important. And this is not to say that white people are not historically important in history, right? There are Europeans and other folk who would claim to be white have made great strides in world history. I'm not saying that. I'm saying as a collective, as world history, every perspective doesn't have to come from those lenses to be history. So essentially, when people are saying that, well, this is not real history, what they're actually saying is that they don't respect your humanity. Because the 1619 Project, and you know, I, I know that there was some controversy with a certain interpretation, but that's really the only thing that people always bring to. And I believe in this new iteration, there's been some more citations and co-signing by historians, right? But people were very upset with the 1619 Project, not because of that, like one kind of controversy, but because it was a history taught through Black people's perspectives. Yeah, um, there's no such thing as a patriotic history. You know, history is not supposed to be that. History is not about patriotism. History is not about liking or loving or hating a place or a country or something. History is about trying to help us understand our full humanity. And sometimes when we understand our full humanity, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's indifferent. But when when you're taught that you're special and you're exceptional and your history is always the top, then, yeah, it, it I feel a little empathy for those who have that particular aspect and they get very upset. But they're upset because, wow, no one has told me about this history and that these these histories are great. Right. So I think we really have to kind of think of it in that particular way as history as humanity. Makes sense. Another thing that you study is the history of Black history education, because, again, it's not a new fight to include Black history. So I do want to talk about the history. We've been trying to get Black history right since the uh, late 19th century, particularly after the Civil War. But if we look at schools, particularly predominantly Black schools, teachers would look at the curriculum and say, no, this is not the right curriculum and we need to write our own history textbooks. So you have the examples from, oh, man, 1892 of Edward A. Johnson, who was a principal in North Carolina that wrote his own Black history textbook for his school children. You also had Booker T. Washington in 1901 that wrote his Black history textbook for his Tuskegee schools. And, you know, Booker T. Washington is controversial within Black history circles. And some comments that Booker T. Washington made in his Black history textbook could be problematic today. But again, he wrote a Black history textbook for his Tuskegee schools. Lilo Amos Pendleton from Washington, D.C. in 1912, she wrote a Black history textbook for her kids and Carter G. Woodson in 1922, you know, wrote A Negro in Our History. So you see, like early on, you had advocacy from Black educators since the 19th century. They went to write W-R-I-T and write R-I-G-H-T, right? History in those particular ways. And throughout history, there's always been some momentum. The 1960s saw a big boom of Black history and Black studies courses around the United States. So a lot of people love to talk about the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King and kind of the social and political aspects. But 
we really miss on the educative aspects of the 1960s movement, which brought a lot of Black history and Black studies textbooks and curriculum within the school systems, right? So that's when you have Philadelphia try to mandate Black history for there in 1967. One of the first states to mandate or attempt to have policies around Black history was California in 1961. And then you had other states follow with various different, quote unquote, policies and mandates. In the 80s and 90s, you saw mandates as well. So currently, we probably have around eight, nine, maybe 10 states that mandate Black history in their state curriculum, right? So you have New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. Uh, you have South Carolina. You have Florida. You have Washington State. You have California. You have Tex- no, not Texas, but you have Mississippi. You have Arkansas. Connecticut and Rhode Island at one time were were talking about having a policy on Black history. Virginia is really deep into the policies of Black history. So you have all these particular states. Some of them, you know, ironically have anti-CRT laws. So, you know, we'll see how that goes, right? But you do have a history of Black history education around this country, ebbs and flows in terms of kind of policies and what school districts and school systems should do. Wow. What you said about how like the civil rights movement, we talk about the social and the political, but not really the educational. When you add that context, there's a lot of like sliding back to where we were at the civil rights movement with like attacks on voting rights. But actually, these anti-CRT laws are actually us sliding back educationally, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, All these things are interconnected. All these particular things are historic, been done before. So the big question that we've been kind of circling around that I want to just ask directly is how do you teach Black history in a holistic way? Because if you're listening to the show, you're probably interested in learning Black history or you might even be trying to teach it. I think the most important thing, however, in terms of thinking about what are the proper ways of teaching Black history? So there should be kind of eight principles that are detailed within teaching Black history. So the first principle is this notion of There has to be teaching about systemic power, oppression, and racism. reason why that's really important is because those factors have always been factors in Black lived realities, even today, from our health care to our education, where we live, it's always kind of a function of power, oppression, and racism. Principle two is this notion of you can't just teach about oppression. You have to teach about Black agency, Black agency, perseverance, and resistance. Black people have always fought against systemic oppression, and extremely important for us to really understand that. Principle three deals with Africa and the African diaspora. What's really important within Black history is not necessarily just teaching in U.S. context, but it's teaching Black history as an international concept to talk about the similarities and the differences between Black people around the globe, throughout the diaspora. Those are extremely important. Principle four is this notion of teaching about Black joy and Black love. A lot of times when we teach about Black history, we only teach liberation and oppression, right? Like Black people were oppressed, then hey, liberation, right? But Black joy and Black love is essentially Black people being Black people. It's the history that makes us human. What it does is it just focuses on us being happy and being ourselves. So our culture is very important within when we teach about Black history. Principle five deals with Black intersectionality. Most of our Black history is focused on Black males who are heterosexual, who are middle class, who are able-bodied. We miss on a huge swarp of our identities when we only focus on Black middle class Christian males as kind of important historical figures. Principle six is probably the most controversial for many people. It's this notion of Black historical contention. And what this means is that sometimes we overcompensate 
with Black history, that what we do is we make it too perfect and too pristine. And I think it's extremely important for us to understand that Black histories are not always perfect. So, you know, you look at the things that are going around in Liberia, right? And all that is based on kind of the colonization of Black people from the United States and Canada and how they enslaved the natives of that African region during that particular time. Those types of histories are extremely important for us to understand our humanity. Principle seven deals with this notion of Black social histories and Black genius. Essentially, we need to reconceptualize the narrative that we only focus on those who were exceptional people and focus on everybody because we have to really understand the U.S. wasn't meant for us. So you having this podcast is extremely exceptional. You don't need to be on NPR. You don't need to be this nationally recognized person on CNN to be an exceptional individual. And that's typically how we kind of focus our histories. And you're exceptional because you're exceptional and you're exceptional because you're doing things that you want to do and need to do for our community. And the last one is this notion of Afrofuturism. And while some people will connect it to literacy, what I'm thinking is using our knowledge of the past to reimagine the future. As I said earlier, the blueprint is already there. And we need to really understand what was done in the past, whether it's throughout the diaspora, and utilize that knowledge for today. The biggest thing that we need to do for our students is that we need to give them an opportunity to reimagine the future because they are citizens and they will be the ones that will make decisions later. So if we give them the permission to reimagine the future when they become in the positions of power, to be able to change the world, we can't say the reason why this is done this way is because it's always done that way. They already reimagined the future in their K-12 years. So now they can actually implement those ideas when they become in seats of power. So those are kind of the Black history principles that all of us probably need. These, I, I believe, are humanistic principles and allow us to see Black people as fully human. And then when you teach history like that, there's a way that you have to, at the bare minimum, accept the humanity of Black people. It stops being a question or a thought about the past, the present, or the future. It's the best way for us to exist is in a future that looks different than our present. Because really all Afrofuturism is, well, there's two types of Afrofuturism, right? There's some that kind of continues kind of the oppressive nature, which are in sometimes in a worse situation. But a lot of Afrofuturism is all about seeing society without the interruption of white people. What would have happened if white people just leave us alone? <laughs> right. Like 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 without white supremacy, without racism, without all this. What would happen if people would just leave us alone? That's what Black Panther is. That's what all these other kind of stories are about the black future. And I think that's a very powerful dynamic. Thank you so much for coming on my show. That was great. Hopefully it was a good podcast for you. It's so relevant. And it's always good to just talk about like right now what is happening. Oh, yeah, definitely. So coming up on a milestone, like the first year of having done this podcast, I just really wanted to recenter and refocus on why I do the show, what the importance of it is, the legacy behind it, so that I can continue bringing you content that tells Black history right. I hope you learned something. And next episode, that'll be the fun anniversary episode. So look forward to that. And keep spreading the word about this show. I think it's actually working. All power to all people, y'all. 